Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hey, my name is Patrick, and I'm an alcoholic. Hey, and, uh... It's uh, thank you very much, Jen and, and Liz, for asking me to be here tonight. Or else I would have probably I probably wouldn't have made it to a meeting tonight. In, in all honesty, and it's good that I it's good that I'm here because I know quite a few people in this room uh, that uh, love me pretty much unconditionally, and I feel the same way about them. Um, they've helped me. I've been of service to them here in Oakland over the last four and a half years, and uh, that's that's quite. Uh, that's that's something, you know, because uh, when I got here, I was toxic. Um, I, I uh, the only faith I had that I was too broken to be fixed, and um, I and I couldn't stop drinking. You know, I couldn't I couldn't trust myself to go to the store and get a pack of cigarettes without coming out with a pack of cigarettes and a bottle of ancient age, and. Um, the only thing I, I didn't really think about what I was going to say, but there is one thing that struck me, and that is if if alcohol continued to work for me, if it continued to produce the state of mind that I'd grown accustomed to over decades, that I that I became a subject matter expert on, then I wouldn't be here. You know, my my liver and my heart and you know, my, you know, my legal dealings, everything would have went south before I, uh, I was forced to seek a solution. And, uh, and, and I say that because I didn't do this, you know, I didn't know how to get sober. So I, uh, was born in New York city, grew up in the seventies and the eighties during the general criminal mischief, you know, drinking was just kind of part of it. Uh, you know, we just had a lot of velocity. We, we got into stealing booze before we started drinking it. A lot of matches, kerosene, just anything, you know. And we were latchkey kids. Nobody was home. You know, in all five boroughs in New York, nobody was home. And uh, so that's where I learned how to drink. I learned how to drink from my cousins. I learned how to drink from the from the, the men in my life. I'm, uh, I'm first-generation Irish on my dad's side. And none of these things that I'm telling you reasons that I'm an alcoholic and I'll say this I'll say this I don't I have no idea and if I'm worried about the whys and how comes and you know then I start thinking about do I get a do-over or you know like it, there's no there's no going back you know it doesn't where am I now anyway uh, I uh, I got real good I treated drinking like sports kind of you know and, and, and uh, I was I was on that I was on that first squad I was on the special teams I did all I did it all and, uh, and I was good at it, you know? I thought I was good at it. I, it was a big source of pride for me to be able to out-drink the, the older kids. Well, you know, the young, they were young men. They were in their 20s, and I was out-drinking them when I was, like, 14. You know, that was, that, that was something, too. Um, but anyway, uh, a lot of chaos in the home, this, that, the other thing, whatever, whether it's just regular life angst or whatever, I needed to, I needed to get out of there. And uh, I joined the military, got, in, got introduced to... Uh, institutional style drinking and uh, I uh, 
I had constraints on, on the way I drank, you know, like I couldn't come to, I, I couldn't show up to work drunk. You know, I couldn't show up to duty drunk because the unit I was in would have just, a, you know, 10 mile, 15 mile run, whatever, smelled it on me. I couldn't make the police blotter, you know, or else I would have been out of there. You know, all, all kinds of bad consequences. But the thing about it was is they, it, with all those, you know, consequences looming, they expected you to drink like a hero when when you weren't on duty, you know, and then just anyway, you know. So we we had ways to control our drinking. We used to we used to do the IV therapy, you know. You come in come in at four o'clock in the morning, get two hours before the run, and get a couple of uh, get a couple of IVs in you with a twelve gauge needle, you know what I mean, and uh, you're good to go. All the electrolytes and hydration you needed, and uh, you know that was that was just the cost of doing business. Um. Did a lot. I've done a lot of things, you know. Uh, I, I, I've done a lot of things, and I and I've I did it all on, on self will. Um, my my biggest goal in life was to be a self made man. It was always pointed out to me growing up that like that guy is a self made man. He did it all himself. He's beholden to no one, you know. And uh, I uh, I got to a point. Um, about nine years ago where the wheels came off, you know, and I was, uh, from 2000, who knows when it started, but I can, 2007 in the summer, uh, I was in full flight from reality with, a with an alcohol dependence and, uh, and I, I couldn't, I couldn't stop. I knew I had to stop. It was going to kill me and I couldn't stop. And nobody here turned me away. People here were willing to minimize the opportunities I had to be self-destructive. They wanted to know what meeting I was going to. They were they were more than happy to take me to the meeting. They were more than happy to take me to eat before or afterwards. You know, uh, they invited me to their their barbecues and baseball games and what have you. Everything that you know, everything that people, all the things that I did when I was drinking and all the things that I never thought to do when I was drinking as well. Um, so what happened was, is, uh, you know, my, my, uh, I showed up, I showed up at the emergency room, the VA hospital, and they said to me, uh, what's going on? And I said, bad things keep happening. I can't make them stop. And they said, well, we're going to start an IV on you. You're about to have a seizure. And, you know, I didn't stop drinking then, you know, uh, I was counseled that I was I was heading for organ failure, wet brain. Um, these are things I haven't thought about in a long time because uh, my life looks so different now. Um, I uh, I'm not really intimidated at all about talking in front of you because I'm full of self-centered fear, and uh, I really don't care what you think because uh, you know because I want to. I don't know. I, I just kind of want to quit, but I don't know what that looks like anymore. I don't know what quitting looks like anymore. I don't know what that would be. I don't want to drink, you know, but I, uh, I'm so aware of, of the self-obsession, the, you know, the, the standards that I put on my own life without getting too much psychobabble into it. What's happening with me now is that I got everything I want, you know, <laughs> I decided, I decided that I, I was in a psych program, uh, a 90 day psych program that they kept me for nine months. <laughs> and when I got out, I decided that I wanted to be staff at a program like that for veterans. 
I didn't have any higher education. I ended up uh, ended up going to community college for three years to get myself into university, and uh, and and now uh, now I'm I'm going through this. I'm aware of these feelings that I don't have what it takes. I'm really incompetent. That they maybe just passed me along, or you know, whatever you know. And uh, and what's and what's and what's happening is though that. Now that I'm sitting here and taking the power out of it by talking in a very large room of people, is that that kind of fear I wouldn't have been aware of. I was driven by fear. And here I am, you know, bar fighter, paratrooper, all these things. You know, I'm, I'm a fearless cat, right? But it turns out that fear has been my great motivator the whole time. And now it's right here with me. But I don't, I don't have to, I don't do anything about it. Like, I would go on a four-day run. I, I like to equate it to a tube of toothpaste. You know, when the, when the cap's screwed on. You know, it's the, the to toothpaste is supposed to come out the nozzle when you undo the cap. But if the, the cap is still on tight, you step on that tube of toothpaste, it's not going to come out where it's supposed to. And that's the way my reactivity to my anger works. That is my alcoholism. And there's, there's a solution for that here. You know, there's a solution... There's a solution for me. There's a solution for me. Me is the problem, you know? And uh, and me being afraid the way I am right now, it just it's just more, more development on trying to find a spiritual solution because, because I still think I have to do it all myself quite frequently. And I come to meetings, and I work with sponsees, and I work with my sponsor, and I do service because I need to be reminded. I didn't just get it and say, oh, that makes sense, and I can walk away from it in five months. I need to be reminded. I need to have that wisdom of experience that comes from the people in this room and how this program works constantly, sustain me, you know, because uh, I'm, I'm terrified. I'm terrified of myself. I'm terrified of the world, you know, and so... That may sound like doom and gloom, but I, I would say that that's the good news because I do have a solution, and uh, and if I could do it, you know, it, it, it can be done because uh, because I'm the last guy that wants to tell you that, you know, uh, I need a higher power in my life. You know, I want to tell you. I want to tell you about you know the amount of push-ups I do. I want to tell you about hot yoga and Viagra. You know? <laughs> But that's but that's that's not how it works. So uh, so I can't wait to hear Liz. Thanks. Hi, I'm Liz, and I'm an alcoholic. Hey. Hi, everybody. So nice. <laughs> Welcome to all the newcomers. First and foremost, um, if you're uncomfortable. I totally relate to that. If you're terrified, I totally relate to that. I didn't want anyone to clap for me. I didn't want anyone to look at me. I just wanted to like fast forward time and have something different. And I didn't even know what that was. And so I tried to start remembering your names as we were going around, but after like three or four, I kind of, that didn't work. <laughs> but really, welcome to all of you. Um, I was just thinking, like, back in 1995, I was sitting in Thunder Road in this 12-month program, and um, 
I had this, I would come up with like these schemes, like different schemes. And I thought like the ultimate goal for my life at this point was to win the lottery. And then I could prepay for rehab six months down the road because I knew that I didn't want like the active alcoholic life. And I knew there was more for me. Like I had gotten that in some way. My sister came to visit me maybe a, a couple weeks before and she came in and she had crack burns all around her mouth and she was living back when there was projects in San Francisco. She was like living in the Geneva Towers or something and she snuck in something for me. I think it was Coke. And she offered it to me. And I declined it. And that was the first time in my sober life that I realized, like, I really, really wanted this. You know, really wanted it. But I also didn't want to feel. I really didn't want to feel. So I knew that I didn't want, like, the active alcoholic life. But I also didn't want to feel. So I thought, if I could win the lottery, then I could be totally happy. And when I say happy, I mean, like, obliterated and have no idea what's going on for a good six months. And then I could deal with the other piece later. That was like my whole, that was like my ideal for my life. If they said, write down your ideal, that was my ideal at the time. A lot has changed since then. Um, thanks, Patrick. Um, let's see, I'll start from the beginning. So I, uh, I was born to two teenage parents. They're both, um, alco they were both alcoholic already and they're both alcoholic now. My father had just given up a full football scholarship to Notre Dame to drink his life away and had robbed a gas station and like beat someone in the head and made him retarded. And, uh, my mom was like a teenage single mom who was doing the best she could but had her own alcoholism issues and, um, it was, it was not like the ideal family to grow up in or be raised in. Uh, my mom left him very early on because he was very violent, but he didn't want to leave, so we moved around a lot and had restraining orders. He came he came for us a lot, and there was a lot of violence and a lot of scary stuff I was exposed to as a kid. And um, there's two things I really remember. The first is, like, self-centered fear from a very young age. We were very poor back then. Food stamps looked like larger versions of Monopoly money. I remember, like, being in the grocery store as young as kindergarten and looking around to see if anyone I knew from school would see me. I remember being as young as kindergarten or first grade and being worried that the other kids, like, would be able to tell we were poor. Um, I remember a lot of self-centered fear from a very, very young age. And I also remember being very conflicted about this idea about alcohol because there was my mom who was, like, my hero and tried to protect us, who was constantly drinking with her friends, who let me wear, like, a little waitress outfit with a green pad and take orders. And I could make, like, the perfect mudslide by the time I was six for her friends, you know? And then my father, who was, like, breaking in and beating up my mom and trying to kidnap my sister and myself, and my mom trying to explain it in this healthy way. I think she went to one Al-Anon meeting. She'll, she would still tell you today. I'm, I was, like, an active member of Al-Anon. <laughs> to, this, to this day. Amongst other things, she used to tell me to go take my inventory when she was, like, on Vicodin, and I was, like, 17 with a year sober. And, um, and, um, she would try to explain to me from the one Al-Anon meeting that she went to that, um, <laughs> he was an alcoholic, and that behavior wasn't who he was, that he ingested alcohol and he turned into this monster. You know, she was trying to explain this to this six and seven year old. I was probably six and my sister was seven. And so I had this idea that like alcohol in somebody who's an alcoholic turns them crazy. But at the same time, like I'm watching my mom and all her friends who I felt really safe with growing up probably drink just as much and it didn't turn them crazy. Um, 
you know, if I made drinks well for them, I could stay up and watch Dukes of Hazard. Um, <laughs> there was a lot. There was a lot of um, rewards for being involved in that kind of lifestyle, even from a very young age. And looking back as an adult, that's actually like really sad. Um, but my father, like, you know, in a lot of ways, I had a very abnormal childhood. I couldn't have people spend the night because we never knew when my father was going to break in. We moved around a lot. He kidnapped us. And being a totally active alcoholic with no car, like, all I remember about that experience is, like, the bus being pulled over by police and them finding us on a bus. Um, I don't know what he was going to do with us. Like, probably drop us off in front of a bar at some point. Um... And, uh, and then I remember, like, there was normal things. I had a, a bunny named Floppy who had bunnies and a scooter and um, people around who seemingly cared about me and grandparents that were normal and a lot of self-centered fear. I wasn't just, like, scared for my safety with my father or confused about my mother. I was scared that everyone was going to judge me. I was scared I wasn't good enough. I was scared I was too poor. I was scared you were going to find out who I really was. I had to play, like, this inside and outside life all the time. And so um, by the time I got real with myself in sobriety, I realized how uncomfortable I was even then. And that just sort of continued through my life. And um, for me, like, I really believe in the d disease concept of alcoholism. You know, I was very, very obsessive compulsive with everything before I even touched alcohol. I played a shitload of Atari. <laughs> really, really, really good at Cuber. You know, I wouldn't leave my Atari unless I could pause it to the next level because if I lost the level, I mean, I would literally like pee myself and not eat if I was going to have to pause it. I would steal money to buy Almond Roca and Reese's Peanut Butter Cups before I discovered alcohol and would like binge on sugar, like anything to get me outside of these feelings I was having. Um, and when I first drank, it was like the golden ticket for me. You know, and um, I was young. I was around alcohol all the time. I remember the first time I got drunk, I was probably like nine or ten years old. And um, the first time I got drunk outside of my home was at my friend um, Crystal lived with her grandparents because I think she had a similar upbringing that I did. Her grandma took her in. And I got so drunk. And I remember I had these button fly Levi's on. And I remember because it was really hard to get them back on because it wasn't just like a zipper. There was all these buttons. I specifically remember how hard that was. And um, we drank all this liquor in our grandma's liquor cabinet. And I peed myself and I barked on myself and I couldn't get my pants back up before anyone was going to come home and catch us. And I was like, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Like, ever. And I didn't care. I remember. I, I, I have clarity in that moment of wanting my hands to make the buttons work on my pants. Like that whole thing where you're like, that finger and that finger, and why is it so hard, and I can't really reach it, and uh, being like, fuck it, I'll just walk home with no pants on. Um, <laughs> excuse the F word, I, I try not to cuss that much anymore. Um, it won't happen again. At least I'll try for it, I'll have it again. And, um, and, and it just took off from there. It really took off from there. And being that I was young, um, that looked like stealing alcohol from stores, that looked like stealing alcohol from my friend's parents' liquor cabinets, from my grandparents' liquor cabinets, from the person who didn't lock the door to their house's liquor cabinets. Like, it was just, like, a lot of thievery, a lot of thievery. And um, I'll say, like, a lot of the, the stuff that I felt shame about coming in here when I started to get real with myself about everything that happened was just how I really crapped on all the people that tried to be good to me. Like, I think there was a lot of kids 
my friend's parents who saw like my situation in life and tried to be good to me and have me at their houses and I would just steal from them. I remember my best friend's older sister, she was quite a bit older, her wedding. I ended up like passed out in the back room, like with puking and peeing on something, you know, and her mom, the mother of the bride had to come like clean up that mess before the cops came, like at her daughter's wedding. I remember like, you know, just getting arrested and my friends getting arrested with me in that whole situation where it's like, I'm sorry, I can't be friends with you anymore. I'm sorry, I can't hang out with you anymore. Or like the most painful times are like the times where where like I would do something to really hurt somebody and I could see the disappointment in their face. Just like the sadness of like, oh, you robbed me, you know? And, um, and you know, it got ugly. I mean, I was in continuation school from sixth grade on. I got kicked out of continuation school. I dropped out of school before middle school was over. I was in and out of juvenile hall all the time. Um, and at the same time, like, to be honest, I was like a likable kid in a lot of ways. Like, all the staff who worked at juvenile hall loved me. You know, they would like... <laughs> I remember getting, like, secret Taco Bell tacos and, like, being told not to tell the other kids in juvenile hall. Or Snickers, or being able to stay out late, or whatever. And I remember just, like, all these really pathetic moments of, like, getting in trouble in juvenile hall, and the the church people would bring in chocolate milk and cake. Oh, I wanted chocolate milk and cake so bad. And um, being stuck in the room and looking out this little window and hearing the church music and, like, looking through the little window and just wanting to be a part of, but I couldn't even keep it together in there. And, um... You know, I, I guess what happened for me is it just got really, really bad, really young. You know, I, I dropped out of school. I got involved, pretty heavy involved in drugs. I couldn't be at my home anymore. I had really injured my mom at one point, you know, like black and blued her body because she tried to keep me from going out to get high at some point. Um, the cops were looking for me. I was, like, probably being taken care of by people that I shouldn't have been around that were a lot older than me that didn't have my best interest in mind. And I think what it turned into for me is like me living in probably like squatter houses where they're cooking meth. And every time someone turned on a TV within like a block radius, like us all like dropping to the floor because we're apparently the SWAT team's coming on and like sitting on the floor for like two or three hours at a time. And that was basically what my days turned into. And I was like 14, 15 years old, you know? And, um, and I, I just, so I went to juvenile hall for like the second to last time. And, um, there was this guy that really caught my eye in juvenile hall. So you do what you do in juvenile hall, you know? You use Vaseline to fix up your eyebrows. You save the, like, perfume samples from the magazines to put on before school or church or any of the co-ed activities. You know, you get ready in the best way possible. And I was like, I especially like this guy because he had escaped and not been caught for four or five months. And he was pretty hot. And I was like... I'm going to make this boy mine, you know? <laughs> like, that's going to happen for me. And um, and it happened for me. And uh, we, when we got out, we went on this run together, and we were, you know, it's funny. We were actually, like, this really sweet team. You know, we really cared about each other. We were both really messed up, and we went on our, like, last runs together. And he was really tough, and he was really buff, and he was two years older than me and had this old Chevy Nova, and we dealt drugs together and uh, drank and did whatever we could to, like, get more to get more. And, you know, at this time, I started having getting court cards, obviously, because I've been in juvenile hall so many times. So if you're here with the court card, no shame in that. That's how I got here. Welcome. 
I'm glad you're here and not signing them yourselves, you know, um, like I did many times. Um, but um, I had heard people also come into juvenile hall, like, through H&I and bring meetings. And I heard, like, some people tell a story similar to mine or at least, like, had an energy about them that I wanted. And so, you know, on this last run, I also, like, the seed was, like, starting to be planted that, like, maybe there was something else for me. I didn't even know what it was, but, like, I had heard people like you tell me that you had similar lives as me and you were different now. And so, like, maybe that was a possibility for me. Um, and so me, me and this guy, we were on this last run together, and um, I didn't know it would be my last run. And one, one morning, we hadn't been to bed probably in a few days, um, he started crying, and it was like, what are you doing? Stop it. You know what I mean? Like, we didn't have emotions, and he was definitely not supposed to have emotions and whatever. And I was like, what are you doing? And he's like, you know, Liz, I just really love you, and I've been sober before. I went to this place called Thunder Road, and I think we should get sober, and I think we can have a better life. And I was like, what? Like, what's going on? And, um, very disorienting, you know? And, um, Button it up, button it up, keep it together. Um, we, just, we just need some sleep. We need to find more booze. We just need some sleep. And um, we both had warrants out for our arrest, and so we made a pact to turn ourselves in, you know? And so what that looked like is he dropped me off and drove away. <laughs> Amazing. And dropped me off, like, down the block so they wouldn't see him, you know? Because he was the one who had escaped, you know? So they all knew him. And I walked up to the counter, and uh, and that and, and in that walk, I was walking to juvenile hall, like not even to a police station, to juvenile hall. And in that walk, like something happened to me, like quietly, where it was just like, maybe I don't have to live like this anymore. You know, like maybe I don't have to live like this. I was tired, and maybe I didn't have to live like this anymore. And no one was telling me that. Like my mom was loaded. My dad was a street bum in San Francisco drinking where he still is today, you know, like, no one was telling me this, but there was something, it was like this moment of clarity where it was like, maybe I don't have to live like this anymore, you know, and that was my last day drinking, and so if you're new and you want to stop, you can with help, at least that's my experience, you know, I couldn't do it on my own, I had tried on my own many, many, many times, but from that day forward, I didn't have to drink again, and, um, so I, on this walk, I had that sort of, like, moment of clarity, and then I turned myself in, and they were really confused why I was just, like, showing up at the counter at Juvenile Hall. And um, I remember the lady had, like, the big fake acrylic nails, and she looked at me like I was crazy, and I was like, whatever, <laughs> like, we can work this out. She had those, like, pre-only nails, like, the ones that are, like, super thick, and she was, like, clicking the computer, and I was out of my mind, and I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> and, and that was it for me, you know? And I had been arrested so many times, they told me, the next time you're arrested, you're going to placement. You know, and placement is like juvie prison, you know, so it's like CYA or like rehab for a year or whatever. Basically, the custody is completely removed from your parents and they can send you away, even if it's like to a foster home after. And um, I went to Thunder Road and I went to Thunder Road for 12 months. And um, I'm going to fast forward and get to recovery here. But um, yeah, I mean, the big, the big, like, thing about all of that for me was that um, I got there and the lady asked me, this lady sat me down named Hillary, and she said, uh, what, what do you want from this? And I was like, I, I just want to know who I am. 
you know, I had been running so hard and I had been so uncomfortable from like the moment I could remember. I had no idea who I was or what I wanted or what made me happy. I remember like grooming myself in the mirror and not being able to look at my face. You know, if I was like blow drying my hair, I'd look at my hair. If I was brushing my teeth, I would brush my teeth. I hated mirrors because I hated myself, you know, and I just wanted to be able to look people in the eye and say something and mean it. I didn't even know if I meant what I said. Like nothing made sense to me because my whole being was about how do I get more? How do I get out of this discomfort I'm feeling? That's like all that mattered to me. And, um, and you know, so like rehab for teenagers, you know, it was crazy. We like stole brownie mix and binged ate it and like tried to escape and like, you know, alarms went off on doors and tried to sneak stuff in and like made out with people you shouldn't have made out with and all of that. And went to a lot of counseling, went to a lot of meetings. But what happened is that my sister came to visit and she brought me something and I didn't want it. Like I said earlier, and it was like the second moment of clarity where it's like, Oh, I have a choice. Because before, the only time I had a choice is when I was locked up. So I didn't have a choice. It was like, be locked up and don't have the option. But if the option's in front of me, I'm not going to be able to say no because I'm an alcoholic. And I can't say no. And my sister offered this to me, and I said no. And it was like my second moment of clarity where, like, whoa, there's something working for me that's not me. Because more than anything, I wanted to be loaded. And... um Anyway, I got my first sponsor there. She would come in through H&I, and she was, like, super goth and um, wore, like, black jelly bracelets and, like, had, like, really crazy, like, she had, like, who's the guy from The Cure? He, he had hair. <laughs> and she had, like, four years sober, and that was, like, so long, you know, and she lived in Oakland, and she was awesome, and I worked through the steps with her in there, and um, I was supposed to get out you know, after 12 months. And after 11 months, my probation officer came to see me. And my mom had been coming to family group, and um, my probation officer told me, like, you can't go home. We did a home visit, and we found, like, evidence of substance abuse, so you're going to have to go to a foster home. You know, and um, I'm kind of emotional sometimes. And if you're uncomfortable with that, I totally really, I used to be uncomfortable with emotions, too. Um... And it, like, really broke my heart, I think, you know, like, as an older teenager, to be, like, to, and I didn't even realize it at the time, but to feel like I tried so hard to have a different life for myself, and I didn't have any support, and the people that were, like, looking me in the face saying, like, we believe you, we're going to be here to support you, were lying, and I didn't understand why, you know, the the sister program to AA Al-Anon has helped me a lot, like, work out these other issues that, that have been, um, that wounded me in my life, allowed me to heal some of those things. But at the time, I didn't understand why. And um, anyway, my grandparents ended up taking me in. So I didn't have to go to a foster home. And so I was out of rehab with a year sober, living with my grandparents for the first time, going to sobriety high school which they used to actually call it sobriety high school. <laughs> Talk about, like, narking you out from the get-go, you know? It's like, where do you go to high school? Sobriety high school. Like, oh, you poor thing, you know? Um, and, and that was the beginning of my recovery outside of rehab, you know? There was all of these meetings, and there was all of you people, and this stuff didn't seem like a crazy, like, Keno game I didn't understand anymore, you know? I, like, learned about it 
rehab and I had a little more, I was like, had a little bit more, I was just more comfortable here, but all of you were still terrifying to me. You know, you would take me to coffee after meetings and ask me if I had seen movies and I would say yes when I had it. And like, you know, I was just talking, we were just chatting webs, you know, I was just like falling around. Like, and thank you. And, um, just like pretend that I belonged because I didn't feel like I belonged, but I didn't want to drink. And you guys were like, if you want this, you have to stick with the winners. You know, you guys taught me to go to meetings, to get a sponsor, and to work the steps. You know, and the last step is to, like, give back and do service. You know, um, you guys taught me to do that. And I, I remember being at my grandparents' house and being 17 years old, you know, about to graduate high school, and reading the big book at night because I was so terrified of going back to that person who just didn't even know what was going on and hated me who was like beating up people that loved her and ripping off people that trusted me. And I, I just didn't want that. I wanted a choice. You know, when I was drinking, I didn't have a choice. I did not have a choice. And um, anyway, I'm going to fast forward again. But after I had about two or three years sober and I met this guy in a meeting and he was this uh, big chubby black dude named Warner. And, um, and, and we, you know, he had befriended me and he, he was like, hey girl, you want to do PR for my band? And I was like, yes. And then I like called some people and I was like, what's PR afterwards? <laughs> but like the question sounded cool and he was including me. You know what I mean? Like all I wanted was to be included and to be comfortable like with you people. And he was like asking me and including me. And I was like, yes, I want to do that. And, um, and that was maybe like 1998. And, it, you know, still AOL email, still pagers. People were giving you their pager codes. If you were going to drink, there was like 911 for sure, twice in a row on the pager. <laughs> I still had an eyebrow ring, and I had a backpack and probably really long jorts and a baggy polo shirt because I did not ever want anyone to see me. So I had baggy clothes, bad piercings, caterpillar eyebrows, you know, the whole bit. And um, I remember, like, one of one of my friends, this, this gay dude named DJ I was in uh, Thunder Road with, finally, like, after, like, three years over, was like, girl, we got to get you a purse. Like, <laughs> no offense, but we got to get you a purse. I'm going to buy it for you. Just try it for, like, six months. And, um, for this band and I thought why not and there was this like sober band and um, basically like the, the craziest stuff happened you know like the band ended up going to Europe twice and I got to travel with this band in Europe twice when I was in my older teenage adult years and they were you know all sober at that point um, at one point there was one member who wasn't but at that point they were and when we were uncomfortable we would hold meetings together in these little places we were staying and like people would come up and give us drugs or give us alcohol and we would like refuse it and um, I, I just saw Tony he was a member of that band um and, and, and this guy, this guy Warner just like loved on me. These people loved on me. I was the only female and it was a bunch of like gnarly dudes. Tony smelled terrible. You know what I mean? <laughs> I hugged him in the beginning of the meeting and I was like, holy shit, babe, you grew up. You don't smell that bad. You know? 
each other, you know? And we were out in the middle of nowhere, and we would find meetings that weren't in English, and we would go, and we would read the book, and we would support each other, and we did this twice. And, um, you know, eventually I decided that I wanted to finish college. And so I stopped working with the bands. And uh, I got a job booking for some local clubs in the Bay Area so I could stay here and finish college. And uh, in booking for those clubs... I realized that like all of all the top agents that I was working with booking those shows were lawyers. So that led me to this like thing that like maybe I want to go to law school. You know, and it all started with this guy in the program saying like, hey girl, you want to do PR for my band? When I was like 17 years old, you know? And I didn't know what that meant, you know? Like my mom, like, you know, my mom is high and my dad is drunk and I didn't have like people to say like, this is how you apply to college, you know? So I came into these rooms and I was like, this is what I want to do. I don't know how to do it. And I would speak up and people would come up to me and say like, let me help you with that. You know, I know it's scary, but let me help you with that. And you guys taught me how to walk through fear, you know? So like my first application was scary, but after that, and then I got into a college, I realized like the next one, it was just fear and I could walk through it again. You know, and I just kept walking through fear and like, I don't know how, you know, but I was, um, a little emotional about some of this, but I was like just applying to law schools, you know, and I was terrified because I didn't think I would be good enough. I didn't think I'd be smart enough. I didn't think I would get in. I like just didn't think I was enough. And I was in New York with some people that were sober because that's how we rolled. Like we did stuff together. We got to do fun stuff. We had money. We worked. We saved money. We went on trips. We did what we want. We had choices. It's amazing. I almost said the F word again, but I didn't. And I'm um, pretty proud of that. And, um, and I got a call when I was in New York that Warner had an aneurysm. And so I flew back. And... Um, I flew back and he was on life support and uh, I got to hold his hand when they took him off life support. You know, like him and um, his sister were in the room. I mean, and me. And when they took him off life support and I got to be with him when he passed. And you know, like it took a few years but I realized that like Warner and my father were born three days apart to the same year. You know, and like part of being in recovery and part of showing up for all of this is that like it brought all of these angels into my life. You know, like I used to be so uncomfortable talking about a higher power and talking about a God even like five years ago. I mean, I almost have 20 years sober and I still that felt too personal to me to talk about that. But by getting out of my own way and working the steps and like ridding all the junk that blocks me from having an open heart. It allowed all these people to flood it into my life that I never had before, that I wasn't given at birth, you know, and to show up for that and love them. And um, when Warner passed away, I was going to walk out and tell everybody who was waiting in the hospital that he had died, you know, and I went through the double doors and I still remember it to this day. I went through the double doors and they opened and there was like 50 people. There was 50 people there that loved him because he loved them and because he did this thing, you know? And he, he allowed himself to be open to life and get out of his own way, you know? And he was like a junkie before that. Like a junkie living under a bridge. And, um, you know, that had a huge impact on me. And um, anyway, I ended up somehow getting into the best law school in the country for entertainment law, you know? And I was terrified to go. I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go, and you guys were like, just walk through the fear. 
You know, if I had, <laughs> if I had fear, my sponsor would have me write about it. Like, write about your fears. Get out of your own way. Get out of your own way. And so I did. I listened to you guys, and I went. And um, I left the Bay Area in 2003 to do that, a year after Warner died. And I, f- I finished that program, and I got married because I thought that was a good idea. You know, <laughs> if you're married at 23, God bless you. You know what I mean? But, like... <laughs> It works out for some people, but with my family background and no template on like what I wanted and how to make that work, it didn't work out for me. And the funniest thing, ha- the funniest thing, one of the funniest things I laugh about myself is that, and I've learned all this through the steps and stuff, guys, is that I hate being wrong. <laughs> and even more, I hate you guys knowing I'm wrong. And um, you know, so I got married to this this great man. We're really good friends today, and. Um, and it wasn't like a good idea, but for some reason, okay, so I go, I go to law school and I decide, I keep my sponsor up here and I'm not really working with her, right? I'm like calling once a month to check in. I try to go to meetings down there. I didn't really like them. And so what happened is at like nine years sober, this is just like part of my experience. Like I stopped cleaning house. I stopped doing the work and I stopped cleaning house. And I would have not told you that because I was taking care of myself and doing what I needed, which was exercising and focusing on classes and whatever, meditating or whatever. And um, I stopped cleaning house and I became a very unhappy person. I became a very unhappy person. And I didn't know at the time. You know, I was just in law school doing my, that, my thing about my poor ex-husband. You know, he was like living with me and here I am like just being ruled by the self-centered fear ruled by all the same ugliness that was there when I was drinking that I wanted to like wade out of with all this stuff. It was all coming back. You know, as soon as I stopped cleaning house, it was all coming back. And, um, needless to say, you know, it didn't, it didn't work out for me. I'm talking to this sponsor once every month or so. And, um, and anyway, long story short, I decided at the end of law school that I probably want to get a divorce, but it's my it's like my grandpa's 80th birthday party six months later. So I somehow convinced my ex-husband to come up to the party with his wedding ring on, even though we've been divorced for six months, right? And um, meanwhile, I'm taking a bar trip to Costa Rica, and I invite my sponsor to come down with her boyfriend. And on my way back to the house on her third day there, I see her at a bar drinking. And that's how out of touch I was. That's how out of touch I was. I was convincing this poor man who had been good to me to lie on my behalf, lying to my family, which obviously made it so I couldn't be close to them, right? Like lying to everybody, lying to myself, totally miserable. And I have a sponsor that's drinking and I didn't even know it. (laughs) So after that experience, I recommitted to it (laughs) in a different way. And I realized it's not for me just about not taking a drink, which is foremost the most important thing, because I have no choice as soon as I take that drink. But it's about me being happy, you know? And like I, and and like they talk in this program, I've heard a lot about life on life's terms, and sometimes it's super painful, you know? And I'm gonna get into the last two years because that's been a significant part of my life recently. But, like, sometimes life is super painful. That's my experience. And sometimes it's, like, poignant and beautiful. But, like, it's life. And I get to experience it. 
And when I'm not cleaning house and I'm not working the steps and I'm not being of service, I mean, the best advice I've ever been given, and it's so simple, is basically, like, trust God, clean house, and help others. And if you don't know what that means, just keep coming back. You know, and if you know what that means and you're having a hard time, like, trust that process. Because I have been through some S lately. You know what I mean? Like, to where, like, it, like the darkest before the dawn song lasted, like, way too long. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, listening to Bonnie Var on repeat for two years. <laughs> and, um... And so after that experience where I became really unhappy and I... I... I polluted the people in my life with that unhappiness. I recommitted to AA and I recommitted to doing this thing because it didn't matter whether I wanted to show up for a meeting. It didn't matter whether I wanted to dedicate the time to it. What mattered is that like I gave myself the opportunity to like step out of my own way and be happy. You know, and um and so since then, you know, a lot has happened that I'm gonna tell you about in like one and a half minutes. But basically um I moved back here I took the bar, and then I got laid off from a job, and then I decided I wanted to work in New York City, so then I took the New York bar and moved to New York, but I had this fantastic opportunity to work on the legal team for uh, Barack Obama's first campaign, which was like a total pleasure to me, like whatever your political beliefs, to have that opportunity was like amazing, and I too sometimes like feel like a fraud of like, don't they know who I am? Don't, why are they trusting my opinion? Like, whose suit am I wearing? Because it's not mine, you know? Um, and I had that opportunity, and then I moved to New York City, and I realized I didn't really like it, because it's really cold and really hot, and I didn't have any time off, and um, and so it was like another big wake-up call where it's like, I was wrong about something, and I could admit it. I thought I wanted to live here, and now I don't. So I'm just going to come back, and I came back, and, you know, I've continued to just try to show up and, like, get out of my own way. And allow you guys and God to speak through you to be able to have the life I want. And now, you know, the last two years was really, really, really hard for me. I, um, I mean, I've been coming out of it the last six months or so. But on the same day, um, my father was hit by a car. And the man I was with for five years, who we were going to get married like four months later, left me. Um, and, and it was mostly related to addiction issues. So it wasn't like... And... Um, you know, my father was supposed to die, and he was supposed to die for six weeks, and somehow he pulled out of it, you know? And now he has a traumatic brain injury, and he's just, like, more injured on the streets of San Francisco, like, as an active drunk. But I went to see him in the hospital, and I brought my laptop there, and I worked out of that hospital room in the CCU at SF General every day for almost, like, four weeks. And no one came. No one was there. You know, and that was the life of what it looks like at the end of a life of an active alcoholic. You know, priests would come and do, like, the anointment, and then they would, like, splash it on my head. I didn't know what was happening. And <laughs> and they seemed drunk, and they would pose for weird pictures of the Bible for me. And <laughs> but no one was there. No one was there. And somehow he pulled out of it, but, you know, he's now an active alcoholic, brain-damaged, so I was, like, grieving the breakup, and then my dog died. And then my mom got in an accident, you know? And this all happened, like, a year and a half ago. And um, it was, like, dark for me. And I was really, really, really sad. And you guys were like, you know, trust God, clean house, help others. You know, my girlfriends loved on me so hard. 
You know, a couple of them are here tonight. They loved on me so hard. You guys loved on me so hard. It was crazy. I was a mess. You'd like feed me pudding. I was such a mess. You'd be like, eat that pudding, you know? <laughs> and I loved me, but you guys loved me harder. You know, it wasn't like you just loved me until I could love myself. You like loved me until I could see that I would actually heal from all of this and be happy again. And, and I showed up for it, you know, and, um, and I'm happy again. Not all the time, but in general I am. And, and so I guess like there's two like significant things I'm going to end it on. And the first is that like one thing that sobriety has taught me, the length of sobriety is that when life is bad, it's going to get good. And when life is good, it's going to get bad. And that's just the cycle of life. And I didn't experience that drunk because life is just bad and confusing and dark. And the other thing is that if I'm willing to sit through discomfort, like just sit through it, that I actually can be really, really happy. And not just kind of happy. Not just like showing up, coming to meetings, kind of happy, but really, really happy. And so if you are uncomfortable, whether you're new or whether you're just in pain, like I'll just tell you, like for me just sitting through it, it's like I'm coming on the other side of it now, you know? And you guys taught me all of this. All of it. So anyway, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.